And one of them is before you invest, understand that every investment is not only a capital allocation, it's a risk allocation. And that is not just the R squared to what's already in your portfolio, but it's a real chance that that investment can go to zero. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Stuart Marilise. Stuart, are you ready to rock? I am, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Yes, it's my pleasure. Stuart, has around 25 years experience in institutional finance and capital markets. Much of this has been related to equity investing in Asia initially with institutional investors and laterally with investment banks. He now focuses on private investments, working mostly with growth companies and helping them refine their business models, presentations and connectivity to investors and markets. And we have a connection ourselves, in fact, connectivity we both worked at Citibank many years ago, and I'm saying it's probably about 2006. So, Stuart, take a minute, fill in any further tidbits about your life. Well, I think you pretty much uh, hit all the main things there. I mean, we've both been a long time in Asia. I'm based in Singapore, which I find works really well, not only for capturing investment flows and themes, but being having good proximity to our markets in Indonesia, Thailand, China, India, where you can go along, kick tires, meet some companies, and also receive good ideas and insights from other people as well. But when it comes to actually our personal investing, we're all very busy people. And although investing is preparing for the future, there's many other things we want to do in our lives. We just have limited time, or depending on where you work, what your occupation is, you may have, say, conflicts of interest that you have to manage which means you're not always going to be have, the, have the freedom to anticipate change and react to it to be able to maybe put an effective stop loss in place. We can talk about stop losses. You realize you try and uh, find an effective stop loss and someone will always give you an example of where it won't work. So on the whole, one way around that is to look for, say, good quality companies that will be low maintenance. They'll have essentially low volatility growth maybe an element of predictability, but really we want to see investments where the equity will be expanding as a reward for taking that risk. And in the words of probably the most successful investor, he has a preferred holding period that is forever. Now, you think that's a great quote and probably experience over the last eight years, there's a handful of stocks that have delivered that. But eight years is probably a period that's really too short to draw an effective conclusion right now. Mm. But really, we're looking for the benefits of compounding returns. We're not really looking for weaknesses in cyclical industries or economic shocks. Essentially, we want to find a stock that keeps on giving. And that's what uh, drew me to the concept. And being closer to some emerging markets and developing economies, we see certain themes emerge that play out pretty consistently. You can think of a few yourself, I'm sure. But one that I'm drawn to with a consumer bias is that as wealth, and GDP per capita grows in a country, so does the consumption of protein per capita, meat, dairy, fish, that sort of thing. And you, know, you can look at the regression of this across a number of countries. It has a really good fit. In somewhere like China, it would be a growth in meat consumption and dairy consumption per capita. In India, it will have a bias to dairy for a number of reasons. So 
I came across a stock that was IPOing. What I liked about it was it wasn't necessarily a consumer name. It wasn't going to have a high consumer PE premium, nor was it going to have to do all the work to establish a brand and the infrastructure and that complicated relationships with the modern retail format infrastructure that was rolling out. But nonetheless, it had a skill set. It could produce volume food ingredients consistently with good yields at a price that few other people could beat. So as a result, it had something like a dominant market share in the market it was operating in. And you know, as the logistics investment is rolled out, as the uh, consumer becomes wealthier, this company was essentially getting a free ride to modernization and, gr- and profit, while it let others take the risks and do the hard work of displacing wet markets butchers, local greengrocers, and then feeding this scale consumption on a nationwide basis. What was very interesting for me was that supplier relationship the company had is it was taking as raw material something that the industry had hitherto just discarded and it seldom been able to monetize it. So it had a pretty good cost advantage and a technical advantage in processing this raw material into a product for our company. On this customer side, it had a few large buyers, and I was kind of prepared to overlook that because for those customers, it was all about getting scale. That meant you had to have, be tied to the big players to succeed. And as I was saying, there's an element that this company, although it had a brand, it was still a B2B company, but it was letting the other B2C companies do the hard work. And I thought, we can live with that. The profits should be pretty good. And as I said, it had a technical process that it was the first to develop in the country. It was dominant and the yields were good. So that meant that um, foreign competitors coming in, they probably couldn't compete on the low cost advantage or the distribution network and the customer relationships this company had. They would probably have to spend many years of low margins or losses to build up a domestic presence to get accepted. So I thought with this company trading it a significant discount to international peers, it's probably, uh, there's an M&A or as a corporate action opportunity there as well as just straightforward growth. What could go wrong? Actually, that I'm going to interject for just a second that for those listeners who are not necessarily professional investors, this has been a great lesson on the concept of developing a thesis that you're investing on. And I think Stuart's explained the thesis about protein consumption and the positioning of the company and all that very well. So I think that's a great illustration of that, but just having a thesis is not enough. So continue. That's right. I mean, two years post IPO, everything looked to be going very well indeed. Sales were up 90% over that period. Profit before tax was up 120%. The margins, maybe I should have been scratching my head wondering why they were so good. EBITDA margins over 50% generating an ROE of 30% plus. This company could pay a dividend and still retain money to sustain its own growth well into the future. Surely with these kind of metrics and that sort of return on investment capital, who's going to be able to touch it, right? Well, I wasn't the only one thinking this. Quite a few more brokers, analysts were covering the stock over that period. The institutional share base had really grown. There were some big names in there. And I thought, well, I'm keeping good company in this mix. And it was nice to see that the stock price is getting a bit of a re-rating as it traded on a higher multiple and lowered its cost of capital for the future. So surely I thought this is one to lock away, keep for the long term. Well, that's not exactly how it turned out. Otherwise, I wouldn't be on your program talking to you today. 
I realize now, focusing on the long-term prize, getting rather obsessed or just focused on that theme can lead to a little bit of willful blindness, to overlook the imperfections, the blemishes, maybe on governance, or indeed, as I said earlier, not questioning enough the too-good-to-be-true margins. These are things I think someone with fresh eyes looking at the stock might have said were red flags rather than just imperfections. And the signs, they came to fruition uh, over time. There were murmurs and talk that the chairman, who was also the major shareholder, was dabbling more in real estate and land developments, had many sizable businesses on the side, which meant that maybe this company wasn't the main and only focus of her attention. The related party transactions going through the annual report, they'd increased from two to about six in the space of two years. And then strangely, pretty much all the directors or the immediate family either had companies that were supplying this company or they were distributing the product for the company domestically, overseas, and various other segments. And of course, agency and governance, governance risk, particularly in smaller companies, they're always present to a degree. And sometimes we focus on execution, how the company looks in spreadsheet numbers, rather than just saying, who is doing what within the company and where's the cash flow going. And there was one related party acquisition that actually brought the chairman into competition with the company, which I I know, it's unbelievable. And then at the same time, things like the advances to subsidiaries were increasing over time. Some 60% of those subsidiaries were investment holding companies. So there was no transparency on what was going on there. And as an event happens, the tide goes out Our eyes are open for us. And in this case, it was the tainted food scandal, which affected pretty much every segment in China. It was the meat. It was uh, water and quite a few other things as well. And I noticed the P&L was impacted much more than you would have expected from a shock. Companies can get over this. Industries can recover. Regulators get involved. And quite clearly, it seemed to be that there'd be more than just dabbling that was going on. These other businesses were becoming liabilities for the core company. Surplus funds, it seems, were getting redirected to shadow banking activities. And this was creating contingent liabilities, a risk for the future. Something that the auditors, although they would get it mentioned, they said they weren't unable to quantify it, hence the contingent nature. So with the uh, core business being affected, the industry being affected, it seems that on a justifiable company performance, some normal things were going wrong. Some of the sales, it turned out, were on consignment. So there'd been an overbooking of sales and they were coming back or inflating the costs. Unfortunately, by the time this is coming through, the company's sales were down 35%, not from their peak, but from the time of IPO some seven years before. Pre-tax profit was down 10% on that level. And yet SG&A, particularly the general administrative costs, had ballooned. And the uh, EBITDA margin was no longer 50, it was on its way to 20. And the ROE was just a fraction of what it was. Some losses, some stabling, some normalization, but the downturn had really become a chasm. And what had been Uh, happening with the share price over that time? Well, at its peak, it was a four-bagger, or thereabouts, from IPO. And now it's 25% of its IPO price. Essentially, it would decline when the market would decline. So as an investor, you're thinking, oh, this is the market effect on the company. You know, the stock, it is affected by the environment in which it's uh, listed and which it trades. 
But quite clearly, there were some sharp down days, particularly when more aggressive analysts would say, would call fraud, or they'd say inappropriate behavior. And people already sensitized to that would sell first and ask questions later. Uh, normally, these can be buying and opportunities or double, opportunities to, to double down. But for me, I wasn't so much interested in this. If this company was going to work, it was going to work, and I've already made that allocation. But it hasn't quite found its way because of the lingering and ongoing concern or maybe the status of having branded overseas products. China has continued to grow its protein per capita consumption, but the real winners appear to have been overseas players who... Surprising, the market is prepared to pay up for that psychological assurance of premiums, a non-rational decision, but one we would all make ourselves, I'm sure. And then what is the end of this story? Are you still holding the share now? Oh, I still hold the share, yes. So even though there are some issues with uh, governance, it still seems to be credibly audited. Trades on a single-digit P multiple, it seems to be generating cash in excess of that P multiple. So you get a dividend of like 9% on a P of eight or something like that. Mm. But, you know, it, that might lead us in nicely to the specific actions. And one of them is before you invest, understand that every investment is not only a capital allocation, it's a risk allocation. And that is not just the R squared to what's already in your portfolio. But it's a real chance that that investment can go to zero. Now, fortunately, I kind of right-sized that decision in this case. But you have to know your parameters, the limitations of the risk you may take, and your ability to monitor the variability and the fluctuations and progress of that company along the way. Because perhaps, as I indicated earlier, focusing too much on the end destination means you can miss the uh, deviation from that path over your holding period. In some ways, individual stocks, they probably have too many specific variables to be perfect proxies for a macro theme. Later in the life cycle of the company, and that macro trend can reduce the risks for sure. And even actually holding more stocks to capture that thematic opportunity is a great way to diversify your risk. Not a great yeah. way, it's a good way. Yeah? We all know Facebook. But for every Facebook, there are many MySpaces, Friendsters, classmates that never made it. Mm -hmm. And that's a very tough challenge, too, because on the one hand, it's good advice to say, diversify across the protein space, as an example, in this case. But in fact, as you say, it could be that other players disappear. So, you know, there's lots of, in fact, I think one of the main messages I take away is that there's risk everywhere. And maybe I'll sum up a few of the things that I take away from it, and then you uh, give me your feedback on that. A couple of the things, you mentioned something at the beginning of the whole discussion, and that's financial people and the constraints that financial people are under. And first of all, if a person is working for a financial firm, generally that firm has restrictions. And of course, markets and regulators have restrictions as to what a financial people can do. So there are many times that financial people, uh, you think that they're doing this lots of trading and stuff, but it could be that their firm or uh, the regulator says that you have to hold a stock for a certain period of time or something like that. The second thing about financial people that I found fascinating was that in many cases, they were very good at advising their clients. But in also, I saw in many cases that they weren't good at managing their own money. And that was because I think overconfidence bias was one thing that I saw a lot. And the other one is just that they're so busy. It's just so hard to manage a portfolio of 
stocks. So that's the first thing that I think the listeners need to understand is that that's a very common thing I've seen. The other thing I wrote down when I was listening to you talk, I said, losing money with other smart investors is still losing money. So sometimes, you know, we think that, you know, hey, I'm into this stock and other smart investors are in it. That doesn't mean that it was the right choice, right? Now, the other thing I would highlight is just the hardest thing out of your whole story for me, and I'll wrap it up my points on this, and that is that how do you handle market chatter? As an analyst for many years and yourself in the markets for many years, you've got a thesis, you've got a company, you like it, everything's good, and then you hear this chatter. And it's hard to know, should I pay attention to this or not? And many times it's just market chatter and people don't like that story, so they're bad-mouthing it. But then there's other times where there's actually a story building that's a negative story. It's like, how do you handle that? So those are the things that I took away. You have anything uh, to add to that? Those are great points. You probably summed it much better than I explained it, that's for sure. One of the key things also is know yourself. Know your own biases. You talked about bias in terms of success. And if you want to be investing because you're preparing for the future, don't be passionate unless you're being passionate about being thorough in understanding what you're doing. Stocks are never a love affair, and you've got to be prepared just to walk away. And of course, one way to lighten that load on yourself is have an allocation to professional managers. Have a disciplined time investment process. It's a great time to be looking at alternatives to self-investing or to reducing the instruments you use. There's no more choice than ever. And there's a great variety of pricing structures as well. Now, they're not all perfect. ETFs and passive momentum investment is tactical rather than strategic by the sounds of it. And transparency is still not always good. Still, for the retail investor, charges from asset managers and the distribution channels are too high. The communication process is too little. And that's despite ease of doing business through e-commerce, the massive drop in computing and pricing power. All of these things should make investing and access to managers easier. But somehow we're stuck in the 1980s. I don't know why. But what if you're investing? What are you doing? Don't beat yourself up. It's not meant to be about perfection. Although all we hear are success stories, remember, other people's investments are vanity projects. <laughs> yeah. So don't beat yourself up. There are plenty of other people who want to do that for you. Um, <laughs> and you're only making a mistake, really, if you're reliving the same experience for a second or third time. Exactly. As I like to say, it's okay to make new mistakes, but to make old mistakes, there's a problem. Well, I think we'll wrap it up at that point. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. And one of the takeaways I have, I'm going to save this quote, which I wrote down. Don't be passionate about your stocks. Be passionate about being thorough. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. It's a crazy name for a website, huh? As we wrap up, Stuart, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Any parting words for the audience? Well, thanks for this opportunity, Andrew, and good luck with your investing out there. Don't be afraid not to. Yeah. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.